so grateful to all of you for coming out on a Sunday night. Most of you will be getting up early to head to work or maybe get off to school. And I am grateful to be able to be here tonight and just share God's Word with you. We'll finish up chapter 3 here in the book of Genesis. And as you might have guessed, it's going to take us a, a while, uh, probably a year and a bit to get through this book. So <laughs> God's word is truth, amen? And if it's truth, you want to know the truth because it's the truth that sets you free. And one of our goals here at Calvary Chapel really is to teach God's word with authority. And that means we cover it chapter and verse. We cover it line upon line, precept upon precept. And in doing so, the number one commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So the moment we digest a passage of Scripture, we begin to look at what it says, then by the definition of expository teaching, we want to be able to expound on what it says. That means to give it sense and meaning and to read it plainly. And so tonight, as we finish up chapter 3, we reach that place in time where we find the very beginning of what we call the scarlet thread of redemption. It's the first window into the mercy and the grace of God. Up to this point in time, we've seen the creation. We've seen God act in his sovereignty. We've seen God act in his majesty. We've seen God act in his power, his authority. But tonight, as we pick up in verse 20, finish chapter 3, we find his grace. We find his great grace. And the reason this passage to me is so marvelous and so important is because of what we now know is the background. The background thus far in the book of Genesis is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates the entirety of the creation, in essence, with all of the same basic features and functions. He puts his time, his effort, his energy, but he creates exactly one being in all of the universe in his own image, that's mankind. As he creates mankind, because his desire is not a robot, His desire is not an automaton, someone who is under the authority of another and thereby does exactly whatever the supreme being says. You know, if you watch science fiction movies, you find these supreme beings, you know, and they have control over worlds. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. The entire universe is his. He created it. But uniquely and wonderfully, he creates Adam and Eve in order that he might have a relationship with them. And the reason this little bit of a review is so important to us 
God could have, because Adam and Eve are also a creation of God, God could have simply commanded that they love him. But that love would have looked like this. Yes, Master. It would not have been love. It's the reason that arranged marriages don't work. You cannot force someone to love someone. It's an impossibility. You can make them like them. You can make them tolerate them. You can make them obey them. You can do all kinds of things. But love is absolutely, by necessity, volitional. It has to come from that person's desire to love. In order for there to be love, then there must be a choice to not love. So we've seen that God has allowed for the principle of evil. Something for Adam and Eve to choose. Adam and Eve have exactly one tree from which they cannot eat. And guess which one they pick? The one tree. And I realize I'm taking a little bit of time to get going here. But it's really important to the conversation that we're going to have on the remainder of chapter 3. Sovereign God, perfect creation. It was very good, right? Mankind was created also part of that very good creation. Except mankind has an extra component. Created in God's image with free will. Man exercises that free will and basically tells God, I love you, but. What is God's response? And that's where this passage gets monumentally beautiful. Because I shared with you, me, I'm getting me two new people. I'm starting over. I would repeat this process, and I'm just saying me acting in God's capacity. Because let's face it, dealing with me has not been easy on God. Now, I'll just leave it me. But I'm pretty sure... You've given God a few sleepless nights as well. Amen? If there's any of you in here that are perfect, could you like do a class? The rest of us will come. No, we, we've all exercised that free will in the wrong way. Everyone has thought what was right in his own eyes and at times gone that very direction. Would it have not been easier for God to just simply create people who have no capacity to sin? The answer is yes. So God does the hard thing, but the only thing that can validate a love relationship. He covers Adam and Eve's sin. Innocent life for the first time. Because as Paul will write to the church at Rome, through one man's sin, death entered the world. The necessity of the shedding of innocent blood, God's grace, 
is what's revealed. Father, thank you for tonight. Pray that you would bless your word. Anoint us as we study it to receive and to be encouraged and strengthened that you have always loved us. You've always desired to make things right. And you have made a way that we can be right with you. And his name is your own son, Jesus. We thank you for the power of the shed blood for the cross. We thank you for that picture of that cross here in this passage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 20, Genesis 3. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now there are those that debate whether all humankind is related one with another. We now know, because of the mapping of the human genome, that not only is all of mankind related, uh, about 86% of your DNA is exactly like the rest of the people here on this planet. Uh, and so the human genome, the human structure of who we are, is extremely consistent throughout all of the creation. And the subtleties would not make you any less than a human being, and consequently, we're all related to each other, so much so that we have given ourselves a name, and that would be Homo sapiens. We're all of Eve in that sense. Also for Adam and his wife. And notice here, what have they done? They've sinned. They've tried to cover that sin. They've lied about that sin. They, they've been deceptive about that sin. They have justified that sin, and they have blamed each other for that sin. And here's what God does. And there's an implication here, and I don't believe it's a long stretch, because you can't take the skin off an animal without killing the animal. Amen? And everything in the creation was very good. The animals do not have free will, so thereby... The animal that dies is absolutely 100% innocent. And also Adam and his wife, for them, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. The term there that's clothed is actually covered, and it's actually the Hebrew word, kippur, atonement. God made atonement for them. He covered them. Yom meaning day, Kippur is atonement, so the day of atonement is in view for the very first time. When God is going to cover up the mess that Adam and Eve have made. And then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us. And I want you to notice the plurality here. It's a correct rendering. It says us, it doesn't say me. Like one of us, existent from the very beginning, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so the plural name, Lord God, it says there very distinctly, Yahweh Elohim. So the plurality of God, who is the one who's the covenant maker, uses the covenant name of God and will for the rest of the book of Genesis be known as the covenant-making God. Behold, man has become like one of us. 
to know good and evil. And it doesn't say that man has become God. It says that man has become like God in that man now knows good and evil. Man has the capacity to lay alongside of one other, one another things that man did not know until man sinned. Up to this point, man had only known good. There was no knowledge of evil whatsoever. And so eating of that tree, which was the warning which was given to Adam and Eve, was the thing that gave mankind the ability to discern between good and evil. Prior to that, Adam and Eve knew only good. So that is how they became like God. They did not become like gods. They were not all-knowing. They were not all-powerful. They were not present everywhere. They were not omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. They simply now had the capacity that they did not have before, which was to know something that God never wanted them to know in the first place, but gave them the choice to know it as a way to validate the fact they actually love God. Here's what you cannot do, and if you really love me, you won't. The choice is yours. But that choice was real, and they chose wrongly. God does something about it. And you can see it there in verse 21. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Remember, there were two trees. The one, the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, they've already eaten from. The second one, God in his amazing grace says we're not going to let them eat of that tree because we will not let them stay in this perpetual state of sin forever. This is God's grace. When God hymns you in, when God puts boundaries on your life, when God stands in the way of things that attract you, when God says no, even though he could say yes, he is doing so because he loves you and he wants to pour out his grace upon you. He's not doing so because he is the cosmic killjoy. He's not doing so because he doesn't love you and he just wants to see you sweat about it. When God tells us no, he tells us no for a reason. And now God is going to say, mm, 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 no, no. You made the wrong choice. I'm not going to allow you to make another choice. And so when the Apostle Paul would, would write, as the writer of Hebrews also records for us, there is a limit to which God will allow us even to sin. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. Amen? There are things that we think about doing that we shouldn't do, and God knows the outcome of it. And so what does he do? He puts a limit on the amount of temptation. For we are only tempted in such that there is a way of escape. He never allows us to be overburdened with temptation to the point that we couldn't handle it. If mankind were to live forever in the state of knowledge of good and evil, you want to see the result of it? It happened in Texas today. 
That's the result of rampant evil in the mind of a single man. That's what happens when mankind is allowed to live in perpetual states of evil. You want to see it in a greater way? It's in all the great despots of the world. Began with the Carthaginians and the Medes and the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks. Great societies of the world that started out on a path that led to ultimately them taking that power to its extreme and using it for their own glory and eventually destroying the creation itself, people. So God doesn't let systems or individuals any longer live forever. One of the unique things, whether you know it or not, about the United States of America, are we are, we are the longest-running democracy ever in the history of the world. No democracy has ever lasted this long. Because normally what happens is those freedoms are abused. You see, there was a measure of freedom originally in Russia. And there was a measure of freedom originally in China. There was a measure of freedom originally in India. And as mankind takes those freedoms and uses them for his own selfish means, he concocts bigger and better ways to sin. And so God says, I'm not going to let systems of government, nor am I going to let individual people live forever because they will use it wrongly. And so here's the rest of the chapter. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which it was, he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so as this story unfolds for us tonight, I don't know how many of you have ever read Paradise Lost by John Milton. It's actually a, a poem, a very long poem drawn from the book of Genesis. But there's a, a sense where the story of Genesis could have had a different path, but it didn't. And John Milton was right. Satan was effective and he did tempt and test. He did cause Adam and Eve, in essence, to be prompted a little bit. But Satan didn't make Adam and Eve sin. There was a way of escape. They had the capacity to do the right thing, but they chose the wrong thing. And while God had prepared with his very loving hands an absolutely perfect home for them, they weren't satisfied. They thought they were missing something. And it just goes to show you the ultimate depravity of the human heart. And so scripture is very accurate. For the heart is deceitful, and it is desperately wicked, and who can know it? And as mankind has sojourned on this earth, we have figured out new ways to be, shall we say, evil? Look at the weapons that we now possess. Weapons of mass destruction. And while in our world currently those things are almost a necessity, 
to fend off rogue nations. Think about what would happen if we just took one of our ballistic missile submarines and unleashed its entire arsenal on a single country. We could obliterate North Korea with one submarine. We have 16 of those. You see, man has habitually chosen to test the limits of God's patience. And eventually, God is going to say enough. And that coming day of judgment, when God finally says enough, man has reached that place of consummate evil to where there is no progression in righteousness, the end is going to come. We get a little preview of it here. I'm not going to let them live forever. I'm going to chase them out of my perfectly good garden. They're going to have to go and live by the sweat of their brow. They're going to have to fend for themselves in that regard, but I'm still going to cover their sin. Notice how this begins. Adam calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve actually means life. She was the mother of all life, in essence. And because we've already seen the prophecy of the coming seed of the woman, we know that there is still good that's going to come out of mankind. And in fact, Eve will be, in that sense, also the mother of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the coming one, who is the answer to the very problem that now exists in the world. And so in that sense, God allows the choice... But he also has the solution in view to the wrong choice. While man could have chosen either way, Adam could have done whichever he wanted. Eve could have made the decision the right way. She didn't. But God from the very beginning said, I've got a plan. And here it is. God's promise to us. But there was a need in Adam and Eve's life. God's going to deal a death blow eventually to Satan and his rule, his reign. But Adam and Eve needed to know there was something wrong. I want to be really clear here. In the span of the last few hours since we ended our third service this morning, I've received a few emails. And the context of some of those emails kind of go like this. Well, I don't know about this repentance thing. It's just all about love. Let me make it really clear to you. There is no salvation without repentance. You cannot need a Savior without admitting that you're a sinner. It's exactly what goes on in this passage. And by the way, it continues all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And the reason I'm saying that is some people mistakenly think that in God's goodness, it means he will also put up with mankind's sin no matter what mankind does. That is not true. Because God has purposely told us that he will always have to punish sin because he's fully a righteous God. 
He can't dwell in the presence of sin. He can't just accept it. Because if he could, then he sent his own son Jesus to the cross needlessly. He allowed his own son to die on Calvary's cross, a horrible death, and to pay the price for our sin for absolutely no reason if there is not a reason for us to repent of our sin to be saved. So let me make it really clear. Adam and Eve have to acknowledge the fact that they're wrong. They have to come to that conclusion that they have been displeasing to God and in that sense agree with God. You see, that true repentance is a contrite heart. It's a heart that doesn't think it's already okay with God. You see, when people talk about salvation without repentance, they believe they're already okay with God. When in fact the Bible clearly says in John chapter 3 that because of sin, the world was already condemned and it still needs a savior. We have to acknowledge that. God now is going to do something about Adam and Eve's sin. And innocent blood is going to have to be spilt for it. And I believe Adam and Eve were both truly sorry for what they had done. It came upon them. Shame had come. They had hid from God. Their nakedness had been revealed to them. They, they understood that something was for the first time amiss. Can you imagine what that was like? I don't know how many of you in here have raised children, been parents. Probably many. Maybe most. But I don't know if you can think back on the first time that your child did something that required punishment. Was that not the worst day ever? Do you remember having to make the choice between correction and not correction? Between having something that discouraged them from ever doing that again? There had to be meaningful punishment, amen? There needed to be something that was a deterrent to the action. If you love them, if you don't love them, then you don't correct the action. If you love them, you correct the action and you administer some type of punishment so that they are absolutely clear that that is the wrong direction. Every parent knows that principle. Is God not our Father? Do you not think that He knows exactly what we need? Adam and Eve are going to get a scolding. And because we are all in Adam and Eve in that sense, because Eve is called here the mother of all living. And by the way, that's not a part of Adam's understanding. That's what God says about her. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that we all die in Adam. So if we're all related, we also all share the same death. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We all have that issue. And only God can fix it. You see, what they were going to have to do, because they didn't have any idea, what they were going to have to do was trust God. They could not undo what they had done. They could be sorry. But they couldn't unlearn what they had learned. They couldn't unsee what they had seen. One of the problems with sin is it makes a lot of promises, doesn't it? Oh, it promises you're going to feel better. You're going to do better. You'll have more. Your life will be greatly improved. That's the problem with sin. It makes promises it can't deliver. That's why there's always consequences to sin. Because sin itself can be forgiven, but the consequences of that sin may well last your entire life. That's why God says don't do it. He's very clear on these things. So what happens in our story? What happens with Adam? What happens with Eve? Being as we're all related, we all have this truth enacted in our life. And and because of that, you know, people will say, well, you know, I don't believe in original sin. Well, then you can't be part of the human race. Because that original sin came through your relationship to Adam and Eve. And your Bible clearly says that there were exactly two people on the planet and from them came everyone else. There are all kinds of people that believe that perhaps we got here because E.T. phoned home. That somebody came and planted a seed in Egypt someplace with the pharaohs. There are even people who believe that there was perhaps a a pre-Adamite man, someone before Adam. Going to switch over, Eli, I think. Technology. Yeah, that would say the battery's about dead. I think it says I have six minutes and ten seconds. That ain't happening. I'm going to have to stay plugged in right here. You good on this one? All right. You see what really is being said here is that in being all related, we're all sinners. We all have the problem. If you're a good Mormon, then you'll believe that there was a group of people who were not related to Adam. They were the Jaredites, the Nephites, the Lamanites, a bunch of ancient somethingites. Supposedly related to the Jewish people, but they kind of lived in another neighborhood of Eden. Some other planet. One of God's other wives. Now, I'm pretty sure the Bible that we have doesn't say that. We are all related to the first two people. And so what we learn from this passage is that sin is very costly. Nakedness becomes a symbol of unrighteousness. They they 
figured they could do this themselves. And that's the problem with us as human beings. By the works of the flesh is no one justified. We figure out we can, we can make it right with God ourselves. It never works because here's what we do. We sew together fig leaves. They can kind of sort of cover up our sin. They, they can cover it for a time. They can make it more tolerable. But what God is going to require is blood. Very specifically innocent blood. And, and I don't know if you've really thought about this, but those skins came off of the very animal friends that Adam was giving, given stewardship over to, to care and tend. Now, we're not told exactly what God did, but can you imagine when Adam and Eve were sitting there cloaked in a lamb skin? We're not told that God went out and tanned it and made it into a jacket. I personally believe that it was still bloody. Still a mess. And it was the lamb that Adam had named. Sin's costly. But God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Leviticus 17 is going to lay out the principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so God does the only thing that he can do to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And their nakedness was more than just physical nakedness. Yes, they were physically naked. And if you don't think that that's an absolutely ingrained human characteristic... I can tell you some stories about young men inside of dorms at camp that you don't even want to hear. I have seen young men try and get into a three-by-three three shower with their suitcase to avoid being seen by other boys naked. We now have shame over nakedness. We didn't originally have that, but we have it now. And it's universal. And the reason that people aren't ashamed of it is because their minds are so depraved that they've reached the point to where they think it's perfectly normal. God created us now to be ashamed of the fact that we're naked and to be, desire to be clothed. We're supposed to be ashamed. And if we're not ashamed, there's a problem. It's not freedom. It's not some new paradigm. It's not naturalness. No, we're, we're now ashamed of it. And it needs to be covered. And God did that to put into Adam and Eve's mind the seriousness of their sin. To say, look, you need to be covered. You can't, you're going to feel that shame for the rest of your days unless it's covered up. And your fig leaves aren't going to do it. And the other thing that we see here is that sin separates. They've been walking, they've been walking with God. They're walking with the Lord Himself. 
hanging out in the garden. I can't even imagine what that would have been like and what that separation would have done to Adam and Eve. Think about it for a second. The Lord said he's become like one of us. Jehovah Elohim, Yahweh Elohim is now announced. This wonderful fellowship that we had is over. you got to go. Let me be really clear here. Sin always does that. You will not experience the full presence of God when you're in sin. Period. People mistake God's tolerance and people mistake God's grace, his mercy upon us, as though he's actually tolerating behavior which he said he doesn't like. You see, we have to be really careful here because they were separated from God. God had to drive them out. God pushed them out of where he wanted them to be. If you want God to push you out of where he wants you to be, then make a habit of sinning. Because you'll end up someplace that God does not want you. I've watched people end up married in situations that they never thought they'd be in. I've watched people get jobs that they should have never had, but they lied to get it. I watch people cheat and steal only to suffer the consequences of being separated from a close and intimate relationship with the Lord. Sin separates. It will always separate you. So if you want a secret to the, being close to the Lord, don't sin. As much as you possibly can. And I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm simply saying when you have choices and you know the right way to go, go the right way. That's how you stay close to the Lord. We get a little brief encounter of the inner counsels of the Godhead here. As man has become like one of us to know good and evil. He had previously only known good. And now he knows something he shouldn't know. Something that only God understood before. You see, God can't be tempted. The book of James is very clear on this. So God could know about evil and not be tempted. But now man knows about evil and man's tempted. Because man is not God. Man was created to have a relationship with God, but man is not God. And so the Mormon teaching that one day you can become a god and have your own planet is theologic nonsense. There's no man on the face of this earth that will ever be God. You're not going to become like God in that sense. You're going to be glorified. But that's because the glory of the risen Christ will be put into your account. Not because you become God. You're not going to have your own little world. You're not going to have your own little planet. You're just going to be really thankful that you made it to heaven. By the grace of God. So as man now knows something he shouldn't know. God has to do something to keep it from going too far wrong. 
And to me, this is one of the clearest pictures of God's grace that we find in the Old Testament. Because God could have just taken his hands off the whole thing. He said, you know what, that's what you want, go for it, let's see how long you last. Think about how you would have responded were you God. You know, there are a lot of people that almost, you know, kind of picture God as like a mad scientist in the heavens. It's like, oh, let's see what they're going to do now. Can't wait to see how they figure this out. No, God so loves the entire world, so loves you and so loves me, so loves us, that he restrains evil. He doesn't let evil go as far as it can go. One of the reasons that we know we're getting towards the end of God's time of grace here on this earth is evil will wax worse and worse. So much so that in the very last times, men will call good evil and evil good. But God's still got his fingers on it. So what's he doing? He's restraining it. And we see it here as he puts these cherubim next to the tree of life. God's saying, I know who you are. I know you can make the right decision, but I'm not going to give you that choice. You ever wondered why you go through some of the things you go through at times as you're making decisions? And I want to speak to some of you that maybe you're faced with some choices right now. And you're actually mulling over something that God has already told you he doesn't want you to do. And there in your little tiny brain, you're trying to figure out how to justify what you already know is wrong. And every corner you turn, there seems to be something in the way. That principle is in play right here. Some little deception, some little thing that you're going to do, some little tiny lie, some tweak of the truth, some habit, some behavior. And it's all leaning towards a greater thing. And God puts roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you go, wow, God was restraining evil in my life. You need to be really thankful that God still does that. Because the Lord only knows how many things we would have gotten into were he not still restraining evil. The Holy Spirit, that's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit in our world. So he puts these two cherubim. The book of Ezekiel tells us about it. The book of Revelation illuminates it for us. And we know, because we studied this already, that Satan himself was actually one of the cherub. He was part of that group called the cherubim, the the plurality of cherubs. There in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Before the throne was like a sea of glass, like crystal. In the midst of the throne, around the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and the back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf. 
The third had the face of a man. The fourth, the living, living creature, was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, full of eyes, around and within, did not rest day or night. They were crying out, Holy is the Lord. Guarding the throne room of heaven. Wherever we see cherubim, we see them guarding closely the holiness of God. And in fact, so much so that even in the Old Testament times, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim, one on either side of the mercy seat. So where God met with man, there was the protection of the cherub. The cherubim were there, restraining that which man could normally do if he was just given free reign. But God doesn't give us free reign. God gives us freedom. God gives us choice. But he's not released us from at least some of his sovereign restraint of evil by the Holy Spirit. The book of Hebrews even tells us of the overshadowing there of the mercy seat. You see, for there to be atonement, there also has to be mercy. So for the high priest to go in on the day of atonement or for you to enter into the presence of the Lord, there has to be mercy applied. The only way you find grace is also by having God's mercy. It's a picture of the way he works in salvation. You see, sometimes people think that grace and mercy are the same thing. No, actually, they're directly opposite one another. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve, and mercy is you not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is God restraining himself. That's why those mercies, the book of Lamentations there in chapter 3, it says, his mercies are new every morning. His compassions, they fail not. If God wasn't merciful, if he had not set the cherubim by the tree of life, I'm guessing Adam and Eve would have not made it to the flood. It's my own personal belief. I don't think they'd have got that far. I think Cain and Abel would have had their little battle. We're going to see them next. They would have been duking it out, and it would have been all over very, very, very quickly. And so we see, in essence, a glimpse of the grace of God. And though the tragic story of man's disobedience is clearly in view here, as, he, as man tries to cover up the guilt and tries to cover up the shame, tries to do what man can, what man's always tried to do, which ah, it wasn't me. We choose religion to do that. We, we choose works to do that. We choose all kinds of things to try and say, well, you know, I'll just take care of it myself. One of the tragedies of works-based relationship is there's not enough works for you to do to cover up the mess that you make. That's why it doesn't work. Because the moment you get done covering up what you did today, uh, by the time you wake up tomorrow, you're going to figure out a new way to do something that's going to need to be covered up. We'll see this in the picture of how God protects Noah in the ark. There's no amount of covering what we've done that's ever going to make it right. It only puts it away so that God doesn't deal with it today. That sin has to be dealt with permanently, and God's going to do that, and he does so by shedding innocent blood. God wants us fully clothed, folks. doesn't want us naked anymore doesn't want us relying on our own works doesn't want us doing what we'll see next with Cain and Abel 
You know, in, in, a, in a very special way, as I, as I look at the story of Cain and Abel, which we'll get to next week, man, it's such a picture of humanity. Because on one side, what man loves to do is do what Cain does. I'll just make something for God. I'll make him a nice, beautiful flower arrangement. I'll, I'll do something that kind of says to God, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm not sorry enough to shed blood. I, I just want to do something to tell you that I'm, I'm kind of sort of sorry. God never accepts it. The only thing he accepted was the innocent blood being shed, the cloak of skin, if you will, the imputation of righteousness. You see, the innocent lamb that died to cover them was sufficient. And now you can see how by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, now you know why he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first lamb is found here. The last lamb is Jesus. The first lamb was a picture. The last lamb was the real deal. He could actually take away our sin because he was both the scapegoat and the sacrificial lamb. He's the one who took it away in the wilderness never again to be seen. He's also the one that dealt with it permanently, actually forgiving it. In essence, it was a picture of God's grace, the innocent for the guilty. And I want you to notice something. It's very, very subtle but it's implied. Who did everything in this passage? It was God, wasn't it? Do you see Adam and Eve doing anything of their own volition? Any work that they created? Any part of this picture that was, you know, they concocted something that they were doing? For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God lest any of us should boast. Amen? Starts right here. Adam and Eve have a problem, and they can't fix it. Adam and Eve actually don't do anything to fix it, except believe that these new coats that they're wearing have actually taken care of the debt of sin. In other words, they believe by faith. It's a picture of salvation, salvation by grace and through faith. This is the very first time that we see an innocent lamb die for the guilty sinner. God did it all. That's the way grace always operates. When people ask you about your salvation experience, yes, you had to believe But you didn't save yourself by being good. And you didn't add anything to the grace of God by accepting his gift. You simply accepted what he did. Adam and Eve accepted what God did. They had no part in it. They simply believed that it was sufficient. That God was satisfied. And so always please leave grace grace. 
Because the only other option is you've got to be trusting in leaves. Your own works. Something you can concoct. No, the truth is the lamb had to die. The lamb had to die then. The lamb has to die now for you. And praise God, that death that he died, he died once and for all. Amen? That's why Paul could say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because what Jesus did was sufficient for all who will believe. What God did for Adam and Eve was sufficient for those who believed, the two of them. They believed that what God did, in that sense, restored the relationship. Made it right when it was not right. But there was only one way then for us to approach a holy God. There's only one way now for us to approach a holy God. And that's to be covered by the blood. Made right in God's eyes because the innocent one died for you and died for me. That is the plan. That's the scarlet thread. That's what begins here in Genesis 3, continues all the way through the book of Revelation. That picture is completed in Jesus. It's what he did at the cross. It's why there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. That's why at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. That's why he's that one way, one truth, and one life. Because the lamb had to die. And so when John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he wasn't talking about a type. He was talking about Jesus. What was a type in the garden became a reality in Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Worship team's going to come back out. Praise God, there's no more coats of skins. Amen? Praise the Lord, no one else has to die. No one else could die. That what Jesus did on Calvary's cross was sufficient to all who believe. And now we can rest and trust in that grace which is complete. We're not waiting like Abraham was. If you want to read what Scripture plainly declares, Luke 16 gives us that picture. You see Abraham and Isaac, all the patriarchs, David, Adam and Eve themselves were waiting for Jesus, so much so that the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 gives us this beautiful picture that who is this who ascended but he who first descended and set those captives free? Jesus released them from that bondage when he said to tell us die it is finished then the full picture of grace was available and that faith that they had waited in for all those millennia produced in them the same righteousness that now is produced in us as we believe on his name they too were saved beautiful picture father thank you tonight that there is only one way that you, Jesus, pictured in this passage as those innocent lambs that were slain to cover Adam and Eve. You are the real lamb that was slain for us on Calvary's cross. And we bless your name because of it. We thank you, Lord, 
for that salvation which is rich and free. And God, as we commit our way to you, as we honor you, the sacrifice you made, how would you bless us with your presence in our lives? Would we know exactly what it means to be forgiven? Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that's struggling, maybe, God, they don't believe tonight that they are forgiven. How would you remind them that it is your grace that sets us free? And that gift that was given to us is sufficient for all who will believe that you, Jesus, died in our place on Calvary's cross, paying the price for our sin, that your righteousness has been imputed to us, put in our account, and our sins have been taken from our account and placed in yours and dealt with forever because your blood was shed. Lord, we thank you for that redemption. We thank you for the remission of our sin. We thank you for your goodness that's now ours by your grace because we're now free. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.